Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Man, I tell you, this morning just, uh, I don't know about you guys, I'm just, it's kind of a gray day, or at least it started out that way this morning, and I was just emotionally flat. But just singing that song, you get to a point to where you're just like, you know what? He is so worthy, and I'm going to shout joyfully to him just because he's worthy. Whether or not I feel that he's worthy, he's worthy. And I just, I just resolved to just, I'm going to shout it. You know, I was thinking about that in the Psalms. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord of all the earth. There's one right response to sing to God. It is to shout. I mean, we have a lot to shout about. We have a lot to sing about. And um, man, it's just, but the Lord has to help us, doesn't he, to remember who he is and who we are in him and all these things. But so thankful for songs like that that just take us back to the throne, take us back to why we are who we are and who he is. Just so thankful for worship, um, to lift our hearts and our, and our eyes of faith to him. So if you're not already there, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll read again our, our text here. As Peter is um, very desirous to see the saints own who they are in Christ, and because of who they are in Christ, to live a life that's like Christ. And which is captured in verse 8 and following. So we'll read 8 and 9 together. Chapter 3, 1 Peter. To sum up all of you, be harmonious or like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we come again to your holy word, and Lord, it's, it's, um, it's your word. It's a word that, Lord, we aren't, as you were mentioning, I'm sure, again this morning through Steve and Sunday school, this is not something that we add to or take away from. It's something that we are to realize is perfect. Um, and, uh, Lord, to add or take away is to profane it, to, to um, and really, Lord, it's, it's, not only does it profane it and, and dishonor you, but it's also not helpful for us. Lord, as it is in its perfection, Lord, it is, it is there um, that we find um, what's best for us, what's most healthy, what's just what's most clear and clarifying about who you are, who we are, and what we are to be about in this world. And Lord, you give us these terms here this morning that we're to think about and think through and just own for ourselves. Lord, each one of these things, um, uh, Lord, we're to take to ourselves each one of these things we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are to imitate him. Matter of fact, Lord, we are predestined to be conformed to his image. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us this morning as we think about these things to be better resolved to, to, to walk as you walked, uh, to live as you lived, to, felt, to feel as you felt um, as you walked through this world in your earthly ministry. And So uh, give us your heart for these things. Just give us excitement that you have spoken and we don't have to wonder what you think. Um, and Lord, uh, give us submissive hearts to take care of how we listen this morning to these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Peter, bringing us to summary statements here of the prior instruction he's given in chapter 1, 2, and 3. He tells us to sum up all of us, all of us in Christ, in, that, in those churches there that were scattered around in Asia, 
to be harmonious with one another, be sympathetic with one another, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. So last week, we looked at the term sympathy, and we observed that sympathy, that, that term there, means to have a fellow feeling with others. Others are going to go through hardship. They're going to go through times of joy. And we are to enter into those situations, enter into that experience with the brethren. Again, it can be a feeling of joy. It can be feeling of weeping. Paul says, rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. And we observe that in the body of Christ, thinking about this term, this, this, this tells us and teaches us that our relationships must, must be sort of pushing past the superficial to genuine love. That genuine love, as Paul says, it's without hypocrisy. Love unfeigned. A love that's without hypocrisy. A love that's genuine. It's, it's not, you know, it's not fake. A love that moves us to know people to such a degree that you can weep with them when they weep, that you can rejoice with them when they rejoice. You enter into their life experience with them as a believer walking this narrow road. And obviously it first takes a heart, right? It takes a changed heart, a heart of love for your brethren. And then from that it takes maintenance. It takes just a constant knowledge that, that, that you are here, reminding yourself you are here for others. That's what sympathy is all about. You are here for others. You're to be here, be here pouring yourself out for others. Not eager to get away. Not eager that once you've listened to this message, you know, it's time to go. You know, you are here for people. That's what you're here for. Now, there could be some circumstances where you absolutely have to leave after. I'm not, talking, I'm not trying to be legalistic about it, but you know what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you are here, we haven't fulfilled our gathering together by just preaching. We are here if we are gathering together to hear the word of God, to hear preaching, sure, but to encourage one another, to sympathize with one another, to know one another. This is why we have the lunches in the back. Um, this is why we have the different forms that we do. This is why we encourage hospitality, those kinds of things. So we're to know that, that you are here for others. And this encouragement, the sympathy you can bring helps them endure this current warfare. We are in a war. Um, and it's easy to forget that you're in a war. Uh, the world doesn't want you to think that you're in a war. <laughs> Certainly doesn't. It wants you to make you, make you think that that all is well and all will forever be well as long as you're doing this, this, and this. And, um, and that life is really about maximizing your pleasure and life is really about maximizing your fun and fun at all costs. I mean, the amount of just hardship people put themselves through to just have fun is crazy. Um, but that's, that's what the world wants you to think, but the reality is we are in a war. Um, we're in a war and we've got an adversary. And that adversary prowls around. That adversary does not sleep, does not take a vacation, and is dead set on your destruction, dead set on our division. And be sure about that. Be sure about that. And, um, and God has given us little tools like sympathy <laughs> to help people remember, wait a minute, I'm not alone in this war. Wait a minute, my struggles are real. Wait a minute, I've got brethren that care for me. I've got a God who cares for me. That's wonderful. And that's what we need. The worst thing is to feel like you're alone, isn't it? To feel like you're alone. The essence of hell, outer darkness, that you're alone. Apart from God's warmth, apart from his goodness, apart from the, the, 
all the, 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 the grace and beauty that, that comes with knowing Him and being known by Him. Being alone is horrible. But we have these wonderful terms that reinforce that we are not alone. We are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, brought into a family of believers and fellow soldiers, and we are to be with one another. And So we looked at sympathy for a little while. And so this morning we're going to look at this other term that's very close, really closely related to it. And it's the fourth term in the group. We'll deal with brotherhood um, after this. But it's the fourth word in the group, and it's kind-hearted. Kind-hearted, there you see it there. Sympathy, brotherly, and kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. So what do we want to say about this? Well, the, the root idea here of kind-hearted that you, it might be hard to see in an English translation is the idea of um, bowels or inward parts, if you want to say guts. Um, the, word is a, the word itself in the Greek is splachnon or splachnoi. It's, it's a word that almost feels like guts, doesn't it? It's a very internal feeling. I may not be saying it right, but that's, that's the idea. But it has, this, it has this focus of your inward being, your heart your deepest seat of your emotion. The word is actually in Acts one eighteen when Judas kills himself and, and uh, from some level of guilt he had. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. That word intestines, that's the word. It's the, you know, that's, that's what it is. Now obviously that's a negative context with this word. Peter is telling us a very positive context of this word. And so he's saying here that we are to have an inward, an inward sense, an inward heart. Our, 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 our inner man is to be kind. It's to be good. The prefix of this term is you. It's got a, so in the original, it's like you splack noise or something like that. It's, it's EU. And usually when we put EU on the front of a word, it's usually to assign a positive sense to the word, like the term eulogy. Um, eulogy is just understood as a good word about someone, typically at a funeral or something like that. So a crude translation would be good bowels, right, or good guts. But that's, again, it's sort of a, a way of, of describing our inward person and that we are to have a sense of goodwill deep down toward others. It's not superficial. It's not just, a, uh, it's not just something that's on the surface. Um, it is something that is genuine and that is sincere and that is deep down. This term affects, touches on the affections and the intentions of the heart that issue forth in goodness expressed. And of course, we looked last week at this, this idea that that when we're thinking through sympathy, feeling what others feel, so to speak, remember we talked about that God, when, when he looked down upon Israel and he saw them enslaved, he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Right? So we started with God seeing that this, this sort of happens in him first. And we can see it here also in Luke chapter 1, this issue of kind-heartedness, or, or as it's translated here, tender mercy of our God, um, uh, this, this, this is something that begins in God as well. 
So in Luke 170, uh, Luke 176 and 79, it's the passage where Zechariah, um, John has been born, and now the Holy Spirit fills Zechariah to uh, just prophesy of, of the glorious uh, future of his son. And he says this, And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He says, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And that's our term, tender mercy of our God. The inward heart of the Lord that moves him to do good and to be merciful and to be pitiful or to be full of pity for others. By the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which he says here, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So it's the tender mercy of our God that brings about forgiveness. It's the tender mercy of our God that moves him to send, as the writer says here, the sunrise from on high. The old translations say the day spring. It's the spring of the day. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful term. It's, it's, a, it's a rich term, this, this idea that, that communicates that from the tender mercies of God, he is sending his son here as the sunrise from on high, not just communicating the fact that Jesus is the light of the world, but also communicating the fact that he is the beginning of a new era. He is the sunrise. He is the one that is bringing in the dawning of a new era, the bringing in the dawning of a new time, a new creation. He is the beginning, as Paul says. He is the beginning. Firstborn of the dead. First fruit. He is the one. And he is the sunrise from on high. And he is sent to save. And why? Because God has a heart of kindness toward you. That's what, that's what moves God. And how big is this heart of kindness? I mean, it's a heart of kindness that's big enough to send what's most precious to him. This is how big it is. This is how big God's heart is. You know, we, we think, when we think of John 3.16... You know, for God so loved the world um, that he who believes in his son shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gives his son for the world. He sends his son for the world. And while we want to make some corrections and say the text, you know, it's not trying to say that he so loved the world that he gave his son, but that he gave his son in this manner, and we try to make, make sure that the text is clear with people, we can't lose the fact that it is his son, after all, that he is giving. It is immense. And as uh, I think it was Robert Law pointed out in his book, it would make sense if, if the Lord looks upon his son and says, I love you so much, son, I'm going to give you a gift. Right? That makes sense to us. But instead, he looks upon a world that doesn't deserve anything good and gives, him, gives them the most incredible. That, John 3.16, should make us baffled. That God would love the world so much that he gives his own son. That should make us baffled. When's the last time you've been baffled at the mercy of God? You won't really understand the gospel if you're not. Is that right? 
you won't truly grasp it. If you think John 3.16 is something that you're entitled to rather than something that is absolutely astounding, you won't fully grasp the gospel. And if you don't grasp that, you're not going to grasp these terms like mercy, kind-heartedness. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, about how kind-heartedness is tethered to the gospel, but we have to understand that God gives his son out of a heart of love for rebels like you and me. It's amazing. So God's tender mercy, his, his, his good heart moves him to save, moves him to send. Robert Layton says that God's hand answers his heart. God's hand answers his heart. Can't forget this about God. He is light, but he is love. He is love. So when we begin to look at this term, kind-heartedness, just like we did with that idea of sympathy, we must start with the Lord. We must start with his own character. And it's vital to see that the Lord is calling us to have the same kind of heart as he does. That's what's going on in 1 Peter 3.8. Kind-hearted. We're to be kind-hearted to one another. God is kind-hearted to us. And if you think about the language of Jesus as the sunrise from on high, because remember, Jesus as the sunrise from on high, he's the dawning of the new era as Christ comes into the world. He's, he's the, uh, um, the light of the world. He comes in as the sunrise from on high. Let's take a look at him. Shining. Let's take a look at his heart of tender mercy. He's sent because of tender mercy. And because he's God in the flesh, oh, he's got plenty of tender mercy in his own person. So I wanted to just take a minute and just look at some of these instances where the same term is used here. Oftentimes, most of the time, translated as compassion. But usually they have to add some other terms with it. Moved with compassion, or he feels compassion. So let's look at some of these places together. So Mark 1, 40 and 41. You're familiar, I think, with the, the occasion here. Jesus has begun his earthly ministry. He's already cast out a demon or two. He's, he's been already teaching and preaching. And it says in Mark 1, 40, a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, that's our term there, moved with compassion, Jesus stretches out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. I am willing. I love that. Jesus takes in the situation. The, this one who, before me is a leper. He's, he's someone who's completely an outcast. He's someone who certainly has physical ailment, societal shame, isolation, desperation. The leper is said here to fall on his knees before Jesus. I mean, what if you were to see this as you were walking down the street, a man just prostrate in front of another person? I mean, what a desperate situation this would be, right? And he does this in front of 
Jesus Christ here, the sunrise from on high, and, and, and he's falling on his knees, and he appeals to Jesus. And he, he's not entitled. You don't get a sense that he's demanding this. He says, if you're willing. If you're willing. I, no sense of entitlement here. He just says, if you're willing. You know that, he knows that it's not a power, an, an issue of his power. It's not an issue of Jesus' ability. He knows Jesus has that. He's already heard about what Jesus has done. That's why he's coming to him at all. And what does Jesus do? Well, he, he heals him. And what compels Jesus to heal him? His guts. His, his, his heart. His kind heart. Moves him to touch this man who, under the old covenant, would make you unclean. And instead, Jesus touches him and instead makes him clean. Oh, he's more than a man, isn't he? He's God the Son. He's the sunrise from on high. This is coming from his tender and kind heart. And he cleanses the man. It's interesting, the language of clean here. The man says, make me clean. He doesn't even just say, heal me. He says, make me clean. What was more important in the guy's mind? Of course, he wanted to be healed, but he wanted to be healed so he'd be clean. I want to be clean. Clean here goes beyond simply the fact that he was physically healed when Jesus touched him. The term itself is in the Septuagint over 38 times in Leviticus alone where it's ritual uncleanness that's in view. Because see, under the Old Covenant, when you were unclean, you were in a sense, cut off from the people of God, cut off from the camp, and in a sense, cut off from God in that state. And God made provisions for you to be restored and to be purified, consecrated once again. But this is the term that the leper uses. He wanted to be clean. He wanted to be restored with God and his people. Jesus cleanses him from his physical ailment, but again, but because he wanted to be clean ceremonially before the Lord and his people. Now Jesus has a heart that goes out to those who want to be cleansed from their desperate state of sinful filth. When you have someone who's in that state where they want to be genuinely clean from sin, Jesus' hearts, his guts, they just, he can't not, I mean, he, he can't say no. Of course, he, he touches them, he cleans them. And because he's God the Son, he has the power to forgive, he has the power to clean, he has the, he has the power to, to wash them new by his Spirit because of what he's done and will do here on the cross. Jesus' kind heart overcomes him to cleanse. It's such a wonderful thing and it's such an assuring thing to all who want their sins forgiven and it's a wonderful thing as we seek to win souls to Christ, isn't it? You're sitting there talking to somebody about the Lord, they're dealing with their sin, coming to terms with how they've made a wreck of their lives. And you don't have to sit there and hold out a ladder for them to climb in order to get to Jesus. You just need to, you know, in, in sort of all these, these convoluted steps or, or make it seem like, you know, that, 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 that Jesus is a million miles away. Really, all you need to say is, listen, you come to terms with the fact you want to be cleansed, Jesus will touch you and heal you. And you have the word of God to base that, that appeal. 
And even when we as believers sin and we need to fellowship, we need our fellowship with Christ to be restored. We want to be cleansed in a sense, right? Will Jesus do it for us? Of course he will. He's the sunrise from on high. He, 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 he's, got a, he's, a, he's the God of tender mercy. In Mark 3, 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea and his disciples and a great, with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed. So get the sense, Jesus is withdrawing to the sea. His disciples are with him and a great multitude. He's got a, a great host of people from Galilee following him. But it's not just from Galilee. It's from Judea. It's from Jerusalem. It's from Idumea. It's beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. We're talking hundreds, perhaps thousands of people coming from all surrounding regions, within Israel and even without, coming around to see Jesus Christ, coming around him because they've heard that this man can heal. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Because Jesus was no charlatan, he was the real deal. And he told his disciples when this was happening and there were all these thousands of people coming, he told, all his, he told his disciples a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that, that all those who had afflictions pressed around him to touch him. I bring this passage up not necessarily because our term is there, but because it's striking to me that Jesus didn't, he, he saw these thousands of people, he's already been ministering before this, he's going to be ministering a lot after this event. There's thousands of people and they're all crowding in on him, wanting to crowd in. This isn't like a very organized, you know, revival where you've got, you know, guards and security and, you know, go through the gate and this, it's not a Billy Graham crusade. These people are wanting to get to him to, to be healed by him. They wanted to get to him to touch him. One place says, and he knew, he's like, guys, if you don't give me a boat, they're going to overwhelm me. <laughs> so I'm going to get in the boat. And I'm going to get in the boat because I want to help them. I could tell them to go away. I could tell them shops closed. He doesn't do that, though. And thousands come to him. What a picture. What a picture. He lets them come. He understands the great need that exists within the crowd. Jesus gives us this picture of him. He, he, wants, he records this picture for us. He does it, at least, I mean, probably for lots of reasons, but at least for two, that Jesus wants to indelibly stamp on our minds this picture of him with crowds so that we can see that Jesus has a heart of compassion. Put it another way, Jesus has time for people. He has time for people. He has time to help others. He has time to meet the needs of others. He wants us to remember that when we feel so inconvenienced by this or that or the other thing and we just can't help, we just can't pick up the phone, we can't. He just wants us to remember he came not to, not to be served, but to serve. He's here for others. His heart of compassion moves him to others. He's a man of immense compassion, and this is what a compassionate person looks like. 
person that is not self-absorbed, that is not, that is not just, just so concerned about their own lives. It's actually one of the most healthy things to be is to be concerned for others. It's good for your own soul. Isolation goes against all sound judgment. So he wants us to have this picture of him, but, but he also is teaching us that people everywhere... are needy people. Desperate people. Desperate people for him. Thousands. It's not like these are the only thousand, pe- thousand you know, few thousand of people that really need him. You know, the, the others are okay, the ones that didn't come. He's trying to just capture something of the fact that just all people everywhere are really a wreck. And they need Jesus Christ. It's not that people in Jesus' day are more needy for him than in our day. Right? We think that as Americans, right? Because we've got, or eight, we've got AC and we've got microwaves and we've got you know, our 401k and we're all okay. We're not all okay. <laughs> we need him. They need him. People out there need him. Are we to live like Jesus Christ? then we're to engage that world that's needy. Now, I'm not saying they're going to go out there and fall before you and say, you know, tell Jesus to heal me. I mean, that would be wonderful. We can pray that way. But what I am saying is that these people, people in Jesus' day and people in our day, are just as broken, just as desperate for Christ. And what's going to end up bringing them to the Lord? What's going to end up making an impact in their lives? Is your guts, your compassion, your heart to want to move toward need and away from only comfort. Toward need. That's what compassion does. It moves you toward need and away from self-absorption. So what are you doing to seek out the needy in hopes of bringing them to Jesus? You have a heart for Jesus Christ. You have the heart of Jesus Christ. What are you doing? Well, first of all, if you don't feel like you do, you definitely need to just start praying and start asking the Lord to help you cultivate this this heart of compassion. But just think of it. And I understand if you're a stay-at-home mom, it's going to look way different than someone's who, someone whose kids are out of the house. But there's there's even there, I mean... Taking your kid, you know, talking to your kids about the needs that exist in our community and around the world and praying with them for those needs, you know, being a mom that makes your kids aware of all the needs that are everywhere. I don't know if some of you watch the, uh, you know, watching the, uh, the, the, the video that Dan sent of them making bread for all these people. And Lebanon, and you just see the people like reaching for bread, you know, just crowded around, just reaching for bread. You know, you can bring your kids together and you can describe that to them and pray for these people, these refugees, whatever it is. You know, you're wanting to cultivate a heart that is very aware of need. That's what I'm saying. Because this is Jesus Christ. This is what he does. Lots of people come to him. He doesn't tell them to go away. He heals them. He, he, he teaches them. He, he helps them. 
Think about orphans, those that need to be adopted. Think of widows, widows in distress. What about your neighbor? Just knowing your neighbors, just getting to know people, period. Everybody's, I mean, again, everybody's a wreck. <laughs> if you don't know Jesus Christ, I mean, especially you're, you're a wreck. You're needy. And a heart of compassion moves toward people. You know, you get to know people um, as you can, people in the world, people in your neighborhood, people at work. It doesn't take long to uncover some real need in there. But, you know, the fundamental way to bring people to Jesus is on your knees. Think of that. Just, you get wind of someone's need that you know in your neighborhood or at work or wherever. Maybe you meet them at the grocery store or whatever, and you talk to them, and you hear them suffering. You're wanting, your heart of compassion should move you to want to alleviate that at some level for the sake of the gospel and for their own good. And, and so you can at very least pray for them, really pray for them. Bring them to the throne. Bring them to the great physician. Petition the Lord for them. So Jesus' heart of compassion moves him. Mark 3.20, and he comes home to Capernaum, He came home, and again the crowd gathered to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. (laughs) I I get tired reading Jesus. He is just pouring himself out. They gather to such extent that they could not even eat a meal. And so, so Jesus skips a meal. He doesn't say, okay, now, okay, enough. Time for us to eat, come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. He lets them stay. Matter of fact, the passage will go on, and we don't have time to look into it, but the passage will go on, and there are a bunch of people sitting at his feet, and he uses it as an object lesson to talk about who his his true family is versus the ones who think that he's lost his mind. But but this, this, this passage is amazing. He comes home, the crowd gathers again to such an extent at his own house, or the place he stayed anyway, that they could not even eat a meal. He can't even get out the door to get something to eat or whatever the text means. He can't. He doesn't have time to eat. doesn't have time to eat. I, pe- I bring this passage up oftentimes at the rescue mission when I preach because I want to teach the guys that these guys, a lot of them are broken and they're down. They're isolated. And I want them to know that Jesus has time for them. You know, it's a very simple message. Jesus has time for you. He makes time for you. You go to him. He'll listen. You go to him in faith. He'll listen. Jesus has an immense heart. Mark 6.34 When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There's that word. Felt compassion for them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it ultimately leads them to feed, to feed these people, these 4,000, in, the, in a similar way. Jesus says, I think that was, that was Mark 6, yeah. Um, oh yeah, there's the text. Mark 8, 2, I feel compassion, he says to his disciples. I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. Jesus sees the hungry men, the hungry women, and children, and what does he think? What does he think? 
Well, I hope they're okay. Come on, disciples, let's go get something to eat. Is that his attitude? Now, Jesus very well knows probably that most of these people are going to leave him and that they're probably not following him for the right reason. He knows that. But he still sees that at some level their commitment, that they've been with him three days and they're hungry. And he's moved with compassion. They have nothing to eat, he says. And listen to the attitude of the disciples. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, this is in the same instance here, right after Jesus said, I have compassion for them because they have nothing to eat. The disciples say, this place is quite desolate. And it's already quite late. So the excuses start. I mean, it's not like a, you know, the market, it's closed, right? It's late. It's getting dark, perhaps, or close to it. And it's desolate. I mean, there's not really a lot, of, a lot around here. I mean, resources-wise, resources we just don't have very much Jesus. So the disciples say, send the people away that they may go into the countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. He's very emphatic. You do it. Don't pawn this off on others. You do it. I just told you. I mean, it's desolate. Places are closed. What do you want to do? You want to go spend money we don't have? They get a little snippy and sarcastic with Jesus. Let's be realistic here, Jesus. Let's be responsible. And then Jesus goes on to show them that it may seem desolate and late and there might be plenty of excuses to keep you from meeting need, but they forgot the most important part. They got him. They got him. Wasn't this the constant reminder God was telling the children of Israel in the wilderness? Okay, I know I'm bringing you to a place where there's a rock and there isn't any water and I know I'm doing that. I know what I'm doing and they complain and they grumble. What should they have done? They should have trusted him. They should have called on him. They should have remembered he's the God who parted the Red Sea. What are we thinking, grumbling and complaining? He's a good shepherd. He's not going to lead us to perish. Oh, but we just don't think that way, do we? We do our calculations. We do our math. Look, it's desolate. It's quite late. Can't do this. And Jesus says, how many fish you got? How many bread? How much bread you got? Oh, you got a little bit? Oh, perfect. Because you got me. Brethren, what is it the Lord would have you do? What kind of needs can you personally meet? What kind of needs can we as a church meet? And while we have to be wise... We also cannot allow resources or the lack thereof to drive our decisions because we have Jesus. Right? We have to be wise. There are things we want to know. Hey, is this the Lord's will? You know? But we cannot forget 
that we have the Lord Jesus. We have the one who can multiply very little. And this is the lesson for us in this. Compassion, you can come to a place where you so rationalize inability to meet this or that need that whatever compassion is in your heart never comes to fruition because of unbelief. You know what I mean? You can get to the place to where you so rationalize everything that you never meet needs. Trust him for this. Don't close your heart or your wallets to need. Sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like it would be good for a lot of people to be shipped to a third world country to understand the great needs that exist in our world. Um, but you don't have to go to a third world country. Honestly, again, you just have to know people. You just have to get to know them. Come to the rescue mission, you know? Ask Gwen about situations that she finds herself in with these people and you'll get a sense of the need that she sees all the time. Talk to others who are engaged in these kinds of compassion ministries and just, just to have your heart stirred. As a church, we need to be asking the question all the time, who are the neediest among us? That's what we need to be. Where can I meet needs? Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. It's the same account as Mark. Mark, Matthew 20, 34. Moved with compassion, Jesus touches their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Luke 7. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So I I know that in 1 Peter 3, I've been saying that these terms are primarily directed at our interactions with each other. Um, And and the fact that we we must be kind-hearted to one another. But... But I wanted to start with Jesus because I also want to make sure that we also realize that we are to be kind-hearted to those who are like sheep without a shepherd, too. We are to be a compassionate bunch. We need to see people as lost and desperate because they are. We're not making it up. You know? I was just talking to my brother-in-law the other day and he was talking about kind of asking me some motivations for evangelism and that kind of thing. And I said, well, I mean, obviously the urgency of the, the power of the gospel to save, but also the reality of a lake of fire. The lake of fire is real and all these people are headed there. Wow, that's a pitiable state. And we need to ask the Lord to continue to make, give us hearts to realize that we can throw them the means of rescue in Jesus Christ. And some of that just starts with being kind and meeting a physical need. That, that can be where it starts. It doesn't have to just start with flat out, you know, acknowledge you're a sinner and repent. Sometimes it just starts out just with kindness, just with I see these needs, I want to help alleviate suffering in your life, and it makes inroads for the gospel. It's compassion. You don't want to leave that, you don't want to leave that compassion part out. And let me say, I think, I think as a church, this is what we want. I can honestly say that, right? This is what we fasted and prayed for. The Lord has answered so much. So this is not a guilt session. 
I mean, obviously, if the Lord is challenging you and is speaking to you, listen to it. Ask the Lord to continue to reveal things. But brethren, there, there's just, oh man, there's just so many other things I think the Lord wants to continue to do through us. If we, if we keep a heart of compassion. So many other things, so many other needs that can be met for the sake of the gospel. You think about Matthew chapter 25 on the day of judgment when Jesus Christ is assessing the sheep and the goats and what does he assess them by? Maybe we need to start doing something with prison. We haven't done that yet. I don't think here. Some of you may have individually. But maybe we need to do that. Just what, what, what are the things? What are the things? And again, some of us are in places where we're more available than others. We can all pray. We must pray. But think of that. That's the day of judgment is cups of cold water visiting prisoners, bringing strangers in. Day of judgment. Think of that. Think of that. Do you have the compassion of Jesus Christ that's issue forth in helping others? Now, this term also does obviously occur in the context of the brethren as well, that we're to be kind-hearted to one another. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Here's Paul listing out the application of the gospel that has saved us, and he speaks to our relationships with one another. He says, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel issues forth in kindness and tenderheartedness toward one another. And the tenderheartedness that he sees here in this context is in the context of offense. He says, forgiving each other, just as Christ has forgiven you. So it's, it's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is walking ready to forgive the brethren. Walking with a tender heart toward your brethren. This is what Paul says. This is the way we are to be to one another. And Paul tells us the rationale. He says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Again, it's tethered to the gospel. Again, Ephesians 4.32. So brethren, when we hold grudges and bitterness and cold hearts, it's because we forget ourselves. (laughs) We forget ourselves. We forget the massive amount of debt that's been forgiven. We forget who we are, or who we were, I should say. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You know? We forget this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Chris was dead in trespasses and sins. Chris used to walk formerly according to the course of this world. He used to be worldly. Chris used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, of Satan himself. Chris used to walk along with the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. I was walking with those who also loved sin and disobeying God. Paul says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. You realize that you were destined, that you were, that you were by nature a child of wrath, that you were the fitting response based on who you are as a sinner in Adam is wrath. You really believe that? If you really believe that, if you really believe that, 
And then you go on and you hear Paul say, but God being rich in mercy, (laughs) because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. It's going to be very hard for you to hold a grudge. When you realize you deserve wrath and you were dead in sin and that Jesus Christ and his power forgave you, raised you up from the dead, when you, were, when you were a rebel, when you were offending him at every level of your existence, and, and instead of inflicting wrath upon you, extends mercy and forgiveness. It's going to be very hard as you think through that to be malicious, to hold a grudge. Because you're going to be like, what am I thinking? Why, why am I taking the place of judge in their lives? We have to keep the gospel in the forefront of our minds if we are to maintain kind hearts and unity in the body. Philippians 1.8. Philippians, wonderful letter. Um, Philippians 1.8. For God is my witness, Paul says to the Philippians, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection there, that's our term, guts. The affection of Christ Jesus. It's that idea, this, this inward heart Paul has for the Philippians. Deep affection. Runs deep in his being. And, and yet, Paul, when he says this, it's sort of an indirect, in an indirect way, he tells them that this, this is not a native love to him. It's not a love that began in Paul. It sources in Paul. It's a love that he has that comes from someone else who loves the Philippians. Well, who is that? It's Christ Jesus. He says, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These are Jesus' affections first. Jesus shares them with Paul for the Philippians. So how should we interpret a situation when some kindness has been shown to you from the body of Christ? You should see it as a, as a proof and an example of the love of Jesus. It's the love of Christ that continues to animate the body for one another. That's, what we, that's why we must continually seek him and abide in him all the time. That's why Christianity is lived by the Spirit of God. Christian ministry is done by the Spirit of God because it's, it's needed to be done through the power of Jesus Christ through us. And this love that Paul has begins with Christ. And ultimately, this just speaks to the fact that it's only a new birth and union with the risen Christ that can give this kind of love and kindness toward other believers. It's a work of God in the heart. It's a work of God that has genuinely impacted our emotions and will. That's why Christianity is not just a mere decision to follow Christ. It is a, it is a, spirit, it is a supernatural miracle whereby God gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that's able to be molded now by his loving hands. The Apostle Paul was so convinced of this powerful and inevitable work in the heart of every genuine saint to love one another that he wrote to the Thessalonians, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. No need. After I became a Christian, you didn't have to tell me to love other Christians. I just wanted to be with them, you know? He says, 
For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It comes with the new birth to love your brethren of the same birth. God himself has taught every blood-bought saint to love one another. This is why you know, there are some non-negotiables here in terms of your claims to know Christ, and one of them is, do you love his people? Do you genuinely love your brethren? And this is why Peter says in chapter 1, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, also it's something they have done, they've obeyed the truth to purify them soul, their souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently won't love from one another from the heart, and then Peter goes on to say, for you have been born again. This new birth brings with it a new love. So now genuine believers no longer feel at home with selfishness and malice and unkindness. We desire to do our brothers and sisters good, yet we still must maintain this heart of goodwill. We must still pray and ask the Lord for love and kind hearts. So this is yet another term, this term kindness, kind-heartedness. This is yet another term that pushes us beyond merely tolerating one another. It pushes us beyond the surface. It reminds us to be constantly keeping our hearts warm toward those with whom we are tempted to be cold. Only the Lord can give us the right heart. But we're responsible to go to him to seek this. doesn't mean there won't be times where we are tolerating one another in love and forbearing. There is that reality. That will happen. Happens in every family. doesn't mean that we'll be gushing over people all the time. Sometimes there can be seasons of raw forbearance, out of love, out of that commitment to want to maintain unity, out of that commitment to want to stay together. It can be hard. But Peter won't, and Paul won't, they won't just let us only stay there. We must have hearts that continue wanting to see our brothers and sisters genuinely built up and encouraged, free from malice, wanting to see the brethren strengthened. So this is the term for kind-hearted. This is the idea of compassion. Compassion toward the lost, compassion toward those who are in great need, compassion toward one another, kind-heartedness. You know, as a church right now, we've got some things that we're thinking through. As the, as the leaders, we're thinking through some things right now with refugee stuff. We've got people asking us, what do we want to do for refugees? I don't know if it's the Lord's will. Steve doesn't. But one thing that we have taken in terms of our approach to these things is we don't want to say, Nope, this is not us. We have certain ideas and certain thoughts about what we think is most wise, but we also have open hearts because we want, we want to be used of the Lord. And so we encourage all of you to pray, like, hey, we, we, have, we as a body have all kinds of opportunities the Lord will bring our way. And, um, and we certainly want to trust Him if He wants to bring these things to us that He can help us do them well. But these things take wisdom. They take, but, the, but we can't ever lose a heart of compassion, brethren. We can't ever. Um, so anyway, but hope this was helpful. That's really all I have for now. And um, why don't I pray and ask the Lord to continue to give us this, this compassion and this kind heart as he has it in himself. Father, we, uh, we thank you. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the new birth 
Lord, the new power that is now resident within us, the same power that brought about your Son from the dead, that power, Lord, that you have toward us who believe. Um, Lord, just thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that, um, Lord, your Spirit um, moves us, and uh, we pray that he would more and more um, compel us to love and compel us to walk as Jesus walked. Lord, for anybody in this room who doesn't have that power to love, who would rather be with the world rather than with your people, who would rather be talking down about your people than edifying, Lord, we pray that you would reveal to them how personally you take that. And Lord, that, that they would see that they are dead in sin, that they do need you, that they are an object of your wrath if they don't know Christ, and that you would extend your kind heart, your tender mercy to save them as well. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.